Good morning. It's my privilege to lead us in prayer this morning. Would you please bow with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, your people, gather today to bow before you and worship in awe of your grace, your mercy, and your majesty. We give thanks for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he who bore our sins upon his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. We know our worldly bodies are frail, Lord, and we seek your peace and comfort for our loved ones who are sick and afflicted. Father, we lift to you our prayers for Alex and Wes Queen and their son Miller, who has returned home from the hospital but is still on a feeding tube. We pray for his continued recovery and your peace and strength upon this family. God, we pray for John and Darlene Schultz in the loss of John's father, and Jocelyn and Marty Martin in the loss of Jocelyn's grandfather and the great-grandfather of their children. Lord, we pray for Lee Shepard, who is in the hospital this week. We pray for Linda Hobby, mother of Nancy Pless and Patty Vines, who is recovering from hip surgery. Lord, thanks for your healing power and mercy for my father, Patrick O'Connor, who continues with surgery this week and his healing in the hospital, and for my mom, who continues to be the strength by his side. God, we lift up to you Dave, Catherine, and Baker Driscoll. We love them, and we know that you love them even more. You who have equipped them with courage and a fierce love of you and their children. And Father, we praise you for the great work of our missions partner, the Schaefer House, and your servant, Betsy Morris. God, thank you for the blessing of baptism this morning, for the amazing way you fully adopt us and love us. We ask your blessing upon these parents, these families, and this church body in shepherding your children in your ways, that, we may, that they may know you and love you every day of their lives. In all ways, Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for your sustaining, your sustaining mercy and for your heavenly grace. It is in you that we find salvation. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Is my microphone on the whole time we, we sang Jesus Love Me? I think it might have been. And I thought misspelling Lyle's name was going to be the biggest mistake of the day. But apologies. I had lunch with uh, two friends this week. A gentleman that invited me to go to lunch. And I was really thankful to spend time with them. And they asked me a lot of questions. And uh, one of them, uh, with the, the topic of preaching came up, and anytime you're a pastor with your congregation and preaching comes up, you're, you're not sure what's coming next. And But one of them asked, you know, they'd heard we're preaching through the book of Numbers now, and quite sincerely said, why Numbers? Uh, what 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 could we learn from the book of Numbers? What What is that going to be about? And so I thought that was a very good question. I was glad to get it, and I had today's New Testament reading on my mind, and so I answered them then. Uh, with First Corinthians 10. And I want you to turn to page five in your worship guide. I just want to highlight a couple things that Richard read for us early that explains wh- why would we preach uh, through the book of Numbers. One reason is always obvious. It's the word of God and the word of God uh, speaks into the whole lives of the people of God. But the apostle Paul actually answers that question in First Corinthians 10. So just look at it for a minute before we read our passage for today. On page five, First Corinthians 10, look at verse six. Uh, Paul had just described, and he will further in this chapter, describe things that happened in the book of Exodus and many things that happened 
in the wilderness journey that are described in the book of Numbers. And he says, now these things took place as examples for us. Paul is an apostle, a Jewish apostle that believes Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And he's writing to Gentiles and he says, these things happened for us. These are examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now look at verse 11 carefully. Paul mentions some other things. He mentions some ways that that generation failed in the wilderness. And he says, verse 11, now these things happened to them. They lived this experience as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Isn't that amazing? When Paul writes this largely Gentile church in the city of Corinth, where people from multiple nations, Greeks, have come to believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and therefore the savior of the nations, Paul says, you're now God's people. And what happened to those people in the past, those were examples for us and they were written down for us. So think about that first audience that would have received 1 Corinthians. They were people that believed that Jesus was God's son who'd come and lived a perfect life, died on the cross in their place, rose again from the dead, and had ascended to heaven. And one day he's going to come back out of heaven and make all things the way they're supposed to be. And they were a wilderness people living in between their redemption and God's final and full salvation glory in the future. They were like a wilderness people living in between. And here's what Paul says. The things that happened to those people, Israel, they were examples for us and they were written down for us. Now go back right up here, look at verse one. This is amazing. Think about a Jewish apostle to a Gentile Christian church. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Wait, 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 wait. our fathers, our fathers, Paul, the Jewish Descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Levi, right? Uh, Paul, that, 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 Jewish, that, that Jewish apostle says that to the Gentiles that believe in Jesus, that now we can claim the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as our fathers. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. If you're uh, in our current Sunday school classes for adults, you're studying Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, and he's going to answer quite explicitly, how is it that Gentiles who believe in Jesus are Abraham's seed and descendants. But that's what Paul's saying here. If you believe in Jesus, you're in Abraham's family. You're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're in God's chosen family. You belong to him and his people. And what happened to our forefathers, so Paul here thinks of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as our forefathers. These were lessons, examples for us, written down for us. So That's one reason we're going to study the book of Numbers. Uh, This is actually our own family history in God's gracious covenant. If you believe in Jesus, the ultimate seed of Abraham, then you're in the family of Abraham. And all those stories, those are stories of our people, our people, because we're in Christ and in, therefore, God's family. So now let's read the beginning of the book of Numbers today. We're covering uh, Numbers chapter 1 through Numbers chapter 4. We're not reading all of it um, because you want to go to lunch today, but... Uh, we're looking at it thematically, the big picture of chap- Numbers chapter 1 through chapter 4, and I'm going to read some portions of it now. Before I read, just be aware, uh, these things took place in this passage 13 months after God rescued his people from Egypt after the Exodus, 13 months later, 11 months after arriving at Sinai, a month after they first erected the tabernacle. That's the context 
of the beginning of the book of Numbers. And so here we go. Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by father's houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who were able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head, as Yahweh had commanded Moses, so he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. These are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. Here's the end of chapter one. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Israelites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel they did according to all that Yahweh commanded Moses. And here's this one brief section from chapter three. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now that I've read it, you may be wondering, why are we preaching through numbers? So let's pray and seek God's help. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word. Would you please today remind us that you are the faithful king in the midst of your people? And magnify the saving power and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ through your word and by the spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The theme of chapters one through four is that Yahweh is the faithful king in the midst of his people. That's it. You're going to see it in lots of ways, but that's what numbers one, chapter one through four is about. Yahweh is the faithful king in the midst of of his people. So I want to look at that with you today. Uh, first of all, I want you to see that Yahweh is the faithful king. 
Uh, at the very beginning of the passage, even what's printed for us here in the worship God, and at the very beginning, we see Yahweh doing what kings do. Look at it with me again. The very beginning, uh, chapter one, verse one, Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meetings. So let me just explain that first phrase to you. Notice they're still at Mount Sinai. From Exodus 19, when they arrive at Mount Sinai, they're there to the end of the book of Exodus when they finally erect the tabernacle. They're there for what's described as the whole book of Leviticus came out of Yahweh speaking to Moses at Mount Sinai. And then the first 10 chapters through chapter 10, verse 10 of the book of Numbers, God's people are still at Mount Sinai. They're there for over a year and Yahweh rescues them from Egypt. He brings them to himself. He brings them to the mountain on Mount the mountain in Sinai. And there he speaks to them. He tells them uh, how to build his tent in their midst. He gives them the law. They're entering into covenant with him and he gives them the priesthood and the sacrifices. And all that happens at Mount Sinai. When you get to the beginning of the book of Numbers, you're still there. And something we've emphasized in the past is still really important. The voluntary humility of the true creator and king, the people live in tents. So Yahweh says, build a tent for me. I want to dwell in the midst of my people. But here's the part I don't want you to miss today. The people, when they heard the tent and how it was described, and when the priests built it according to God's commandment, they understood without any doubt, this is a royal palace in our midst. When they heard the description of the colors blue and the colors purple and the gold covering everything and the, the dimensions of the tent, they had uh, ancient other cultural comparisons and they had their own awareness of what God was saying. And what they understood was when God spoke to them from the tabernacle, he was their king in their midst and he sat on his throne. As a matter of fact, if you look at the bottom of page 12, there's that little drawing down there. And in the middle of the drawing is the tent of meeting. And that far left part, the perfect square, that's the holy place. And what was in the holy place? The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark they built, the the wood they overlaid with gold, Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Testimony, their copy of the Ten Commandments was in the Ark. And above the Ark was the the cherubim uh, in gold. And what they understood was this is the very throne room of Yahweh. So when they thought about the tent, his tent being in their, in their midst, they understood the king, the true God, the God who rescued us from Egypt, the true king and only true God, he lives in the midst of his people. That would have been very, very clear uh, to them because he was speaking to them from his throne room. But notice that we didn't print here, but in chapter one, verses 17 to 46, uh, what Yahweh does is orders a census and it's every man 20 years and older who can go to war. Well, who can order a census to raise an army? A king can. Yahweh is speaking from his throne room and he's raising an army for his own purposes. Why? Because he's the true king. When you look at the tabernacle and you see the holiest place where Yahweh sits on the throne, you see this is the kingdom of God on earth. Heaven can't contain the creator, neither can this tent. But Yahweh says, I will sit there in your midst. That's where I will be as your royal king. And so he's, he has a census to raise an army. Uh, it's, we're, we're told uh, about this phrase about able to go to war 14 times in chapter one. And they talk about the number of his different tribal heads, his companies, and that means his military companies. And so chapter one is all about the true king of Israel, Yahweh himself, 
speaking as a king from his throne room and raising an army for his purposes. Why? Because he's rescued them from Egypt. He currently has them in the wilderness. He's getting them organized because he's in charge and he's leading them to the promised land. And they're going to get the land that he promised to their forefathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's functioning like a king. Now, we didn't print anything from chapter two, but I want you to also look at this uh, picture, uh, this diagram at the bottom of page 12. And here's what chapter two is all about. Yahweh is organizing his whole nation. He tells them all where they're going to camp. In his voluntary humility, he says, build a tent for me in the midst of my people. But then he's the king. So he says, I'm going to tell you where you're going to camp. And so he begins on the east, as, it is, as it's described in chapter 2. And Judah is going to uh, camp to the east there. You see that on your diagram. Next to Issachar and Zebulun, those people will camp on the east. Then the narrative moves to the south. And that's where Reuben uh, Jacob's firstborn, that tribe will camp with Gad and Simeon. And then it moves to the west. Ephraim will camp with Benjamin and Manasseh. And then it moves to the north. We would go north, south, east, west, but that's not how this narrative works. It goes east, south, west, north, around. And that's who's going to camp last. Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. Who gets to tell people, it's time for a census, I'm raising an army, and let me tell you where you're going to live. But in chapter two, the beginning of it, Yahweh as the king is telling them exactly where they will camp in their tribes. But then the second half of chapter two, Yahweh says, and this is how you will march. And so he's obviously functioning like a king. And so as you can, as you can imagine from this diagram, it's on the east, they're going to march out first. And then the Southern group, they're going to march out second. And then from the west, they're going to march out third. And from the north, they're going to march out fourth. But actually in between the first two and the last two, that's where the tent of meeting is going to march in the midst of God's people. Yahweh is the faithful king in the middle of his people. And when they march out, the two sections up front, six tribes, six tribes in the back and in the middle, the tabernacle, the the throne room of the king will move in the midst of the people. God has the right to organize his people the way he wants to. God has every right to organize his people for his purposes. When we get to the New Testament, this gets, it gets simpler and clearer. But I want you to see that when a king takes his prerogative and organizes his people for his own purposes, it reflects something about the desires, the plans of the king. Here in this passage, uh, God is emphasizing his holiness We'll see more of that in chapters three and chapters four. He's emphasizing his centrality, his royal authority, and he wants his people to go and live in the land that he's given them. When you get to the New Testament, we have a king, his name is Jesus, and he gives us two classes of offices. And this reflects the heart of your king. He gives us an office of shepherd. He wants his people, he wants your lives overseen by godly men who care deeply about you and watch over your lives for his glory and your well-being. So he gives us the office of elders. Some are teaching elders, some are ruling elders, but it's a whole office of shepherding. It reflects the heart of your king. He wants you to be shepherded well, cared for well. The second office that King Jesus gives us through his apostles in the New Testament is an office of deacon. And what do deacons do? They do acts of mercy flowing from a compassionate heart like the king himself. So the king is reflecting his heart to his people. I want you to be shepherded well, and I want you to be led into acts of mercy and compassion and kindness. 
Uh, this reflects the simple structure, the simple organization the king is doing reflects the way he wants his people to, be li- to live, to be cared for, and to function. Uh, God has every right to organize his people according to his own plans. Uh, what a grace to have these offices. Well, secondly, I want you to see that Yahweh is the faithful king. So I really want you to see his faithfulness. I've shown you that he's acting like a king. But think about that baptism this morning. Abram. I know you're married to Sarah. And I know that she can't have children. But I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you and your descendants. Later on, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky, like the sand on the seashore. Later on, I I will do it. I will do it. And and after years and years and years, there's just two of them. Then it's Abraham and Sarah. Then it's Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. And then Isaac marries Rebecca and she likewise can't have children. And Isaac prays about it. And God answers his prayer 20 years later. And then they have... uh, twins, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob is just as bad as Esau, but God is gracious to him. And so Jacob ends up having 12 sons and they are end up being the 12 tribal heads of the people of Israel. So you go from two to three, eventually you have 12. And at the end of the book of Genesis, you can see God's generous plan and his promises, his faithfulness unfolding because there's 70 of them when they go into Egypt. And Exodus 1 reminds them, there's 70 of them. It started with two and they couldn't have one baby. Now there's 70. But then when you get to the book of Numbers, after God has rescued his people from Egypt, over 600,000 soldiers. You see, God has made the seed of Abraham like stars in the sky that can't be counted. I just want you to see the faithfulness of God. When he makes big promises, he follows through. Who else can you trust? At some point, you have to make your whole life live on some plane. You, all your plans, all your hopes, all your eggs have got to fundamentally be put into some kind of basket. Why not entrust all that to the one who never fails, who makes promises and keeps everyone? And that's who God is. He's the faithful king, a promise maker, and better than that, a faithful promise keeper. Secondly, I want you to see that this faithful king is in the midst of his people. And this is a major emphasis of the passage. In chapter 2, we're told the Levites are going to move the the tabernacle in between the people even when they march. But here's what chapter 3 and chapter 4 are all about. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 are about the Levites and their role among the people of God. Chapter 3, remember... Moses said, Yahweh said, you're not going to do the census for Levite. That wasn't, that was the war census in chapter one. They weren't counted for war, but they were counted for other purposes. So in chapter three, they're counted. It's every uh, male, a month old and older. And all those Levites are counted because they're like a substitute for the firstborn of Israel. When God rescued his people from Egypt, Pharaoh and his armies wouldn't listen to Yahweh and Yahweh's judgment fell on Egypt. And so what happened? Uh, the firstborn of all Egypt, both sons and animals were killed on the night of Passover, but God's firstborn were not killed. Why? They took the blood of the lamb and put it on their lintel and their doorposts. And when Yahweh and his judgment passed over Egypt, he passed over their homes because of the blood of the lamb and his judgment did not fall on those homes. Well, then Yahweh says, so your firstborn belonged to me. They must serve me. 
But then Yahweh ends up taking the Levites. And that's what chapter three is about. All of chapter three is essentially about this. Yahweh is going to accept the whole tribe of Levites in the place of the firstborn. First, he took the lamb's blood in the place of the judgment their firstborn deserved. And now he'll take the tribe of Levi um, and take them as his own people. And so you see chapter two tells it all about the, the role of the Levites as, as Yahweh accepts them as, as his firstborn. But also in these chapters... I want you to note that the tabernacle is mentioned 12 times in chapters one through four, and it's referred to as a tent of meeting 23 times. So there's, and I may have missed one, but there's at least 43 references to the tabernacle, which is also called the tent of meeting. Why? Because Yahweh is in the midst of his people. And that gets us to chapter four. Look at your little diagram again. Okay. Uh, Chapter three says, I'll accept the Levites in the place of your firstborn. But then this is what they're going to do. Chapter four tells us where the Levites will camp. And do you see it here? The Levites are going to camp between everybody else and where Yahweh lives in his tabernacle, in his tent, in his throne room. Do you see that? And so what you have there on the east where it says priest, Kohath, that is true. But really, who's going to live between Judah and Iskar and Zebulun and the tent of meeting? That's going to be Moses and Aaron and his sons. And they're the only ones, especially Aaron and his sons, they're the ones that you refer to as priests. There were more Levites than there were priests. Not all Levites were priests, but the priests who were the descendants of Aaron, the priests who understand how to do the sacrifices and how people can draw near to to Yahweh, uh, they're going to live at the east. And why is that significant? When people come into the tabernacle, how are they going to come in? They're going to come right through that doorway, moving east to west, moving back into where Yahweh sits uh, in, in the Holy of Holies. They have to go through and engage with the priest. So the priests are there between the people and all the people as they would enter and come in, offer sacrifices and draw near to God. And that's the role of the priest. But look around to the south and the west and the north. That's where the other Levites live. So God has a whole ring of Levites living in between all of his people and his holy presence in the tabernacle. Uh, Why is that? Because God is very, very holy. And that wouldn't matter unless he's in the midst of his people. See, everything that is said in Numbers 1 through 4 is emphasizing again and again, your king is here. Your king is addressing you from his throne room. Your, your king is here and he is holy and he must be approached in ways that respect his holiness. And as you heard one of the verses we read, and it's, it's mentioned multiple times in the first, first four verses. And if people don't approach God as holy, they'll be put to death. By whom? By the priests and the Levites. So this whole passage is emphasizing God's holiness, but not just his holiness in an abstract way. No, his presence in the midst of of his people guarded by the Levites and especially guarded in their approach by the priests. Well, when you get to the New Testament, this becomes wonderful and glorious because here's what the New Testament tells us. Jesus is the great and final tabernacle and temple. Jesus is the great and final priest. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the great and final priest who offers himself as a sacrifice. Jesus is the way that you and I draw near to God in ways that are more profound than coming into the Holy of Holies. We can actually draw into God's very real presence 
through Jesus Christ, through the mediator that he's provided, Jesus Christ our Lord. In light of his perfection, the perfection of his life, the perfection of his sacrifice, the perfection of his priestly ministry. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the ultimate temple. Jesus is the place in a person that you draw near and and, uh, meet with God. And here's something else the New Testament says multiple times. Because Jesus' work is so profound, so perfect, so flawless, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you become God's temple. And not just individually, but we become the holy place where God dwells. So look again at that picture there on the bottom of page six. There's the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle. And that far left side, that perfect square, that's the holy of holies. And this is what Yahweh did uh, at certain times when the tabernacle was, was erected. What happened? But the glory cloud came and filled the tabernacle and shook it. And not even Moses could go inside. Remember that? Because the actual presence of God had come and dwelt in the tabernacle. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, God has come and then dwelt you. The spirit of God lives in you. That's how perfect the work of Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ working on your behalf is so complete, so perfect, so flawless that if you believe in him, you've become the temple of God and God himself dwells in you through his own presence in the person of the Holy Spirit. So I wanna finish by applying that in two ways. I'm gonna do this from Colossians 3. Don't turn there, you'll recognize the words. You can can read it later. But the apostle Paul uh, says this, Uh, Since then, uh, you've been raised with Christ. So what he's just saying there is Jesus is the true ascension offering. He ascended into God's presence. And if then or since then you've been raised with him, he says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You see what he's saying? You now have access to the Holy of Holies. Jesus Christ, who was crucified in your place, was raised again. He ascended into heaven and you can keep seeking the things above. In other words, you can keep drawing near to God in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing I want to emphasize. Because the final and perfect temple has come, Jesus Christ himself. And since we have access to God in him, by all means, keep drawing near to God. You can do it when you wake up. You can do it before you go to sleep. You can do it throughout the day. And we do it when we gather together on the Lord's day. What are we doing? But by faith, drawing near to God through our bold and confident access that we have in Christ Jesus, this very holy God who had put people put to death where they didn't respect his holiness now says to you and me, draw near. You're welcome in Christ Jesus, in my son, to draw near and live in my presence. But there's a second thing I want to encourage you to do today. In the old covenant, there's one class of people that were priests. In the new covenant, we all have a priestly ministry. And, I, and, and Colossians 3 also tells you to, to live out that function. They, uh, Paul says, keep seeking things above. Keep drawing near. It, since you've been raised with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, since he's in the throne room, you can go in the throne room. And then what does he say? Therefore, put to death whatever doesn't fit being in that throne room. And that's what happens in Colossians 3. Uh, Here's how Paul says it. Since we have access to a holy God, since we can draw near to God in Christ Jesus, since we can go into God's very, very throne room and live all of life in God's presence, then he says, since then put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, whatever comes from your flesh, from your rebellious nature. And then he lists them, sexual immorality, 
Since you can draw near to God in God's presence, put it to death. Impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul does not say, hey, draw near to God by faith, but then somehow on your own, apart from God, put to death these things that are killing you. No, but as you draw near to a holy God, as you experience God's promised presence and by faith draw near to him, it's in God's gracious, holy presence that we put to death by faith the things that don't fit living in his presence. You and I know the faithful king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in our midst. Through faith in him, in him, you and I are invited to draw near, to live a priestly life, to put to death those things that don't fit God's holy people, that don't fit a temple life. Let's do so by faith, even as we pray together now. Father in heaven, thank you for the perfect access you've given us to your throne room in Christ Jesus. Thank you that we have bold and confident access to draw near to you. We do so now as we meet you at this table. Oh, Lord Jesus, since you love us, King and shepherd, help us draw near. Feed us and nourish us on this wilderness journey. In Jesus' name, amen.